name is Brie Castellini. I used to be a spy. My name is Chris Cherry. I used to forget that I love Batman. And this is Burn Notice, a weekly rewatch of the USA television masterpiece Burn Notice about Michael Weston, a spy. Throughout this podcast, we will be rating each episode on whether it is A, an episode of television, B, a great episode of television, or C, a great episode of Burn Notice. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason other than criticism, which, of course, we will never accept under any circumstances, check the episode notes for our contact info. I forgot that you'd seen The Batman. I have not seen it yet. It's very good. Uh I think it is a solid B script with A plus execution, or A minus execution. It's really good. I think it's really good at marrying... A lot of the things that people like about the Nolan movies Mm -hmm. with a lot of the things that people like about the Burton movies. Mm -hmm. And I'm also rewatching Tim Burton movies right now. So like, so like, I'm in a weird Batman space right now. Mm -hmm. And like, I kind of had forgotten, I think like, because like, DC has been so bad at making movies, Mm -hmm. like like in the past, like basically in the 2010s, DC could not make a movie. Mm -hmm. Um... Like, it was all bad. It was terrible. Like, the well had been poisoned. Sure. That I forgot that, like, at my heart, I am a DC girl. (laughs) And I love Batman. I also love Batman. And, like, as I learn more about, you know, capitalism and whatnot, it... I, I always have to sit with myself, like, do I still really like Batman? And I do. Because, like, you can, like, try to logic around him with the, like, why isn't he using his money for public works? And it's like, well, he is. And also there's the, you know. Well, I will say, without spoiling this movie, this movie gets into that. That's interesting. Yeah, I think, like. But also, I just, I like a guy who's, like, everything sucks and I'm depressed. I'm going to dress up and kick people's asses. And I'm like, good for you, Bruce Wayne. No, I think, like. This movie gets Batman in a way that I think only Tim Burton and Michael Keaton got close to getting, Mm -hmm. which is that, like, Batman is a weirdo. (laughs) Like, I, like, Chris Nolan and then later Zack Snyder kind of like Batman too much. Right. They make him a little bit too daddy. (laughs) They make him a little bit too, like, this kind of Randian figure. Sure. Um, And, like... And they totally buy into the idea that, like, Batman is a cool guy. Sure. I think you cannot make a Batman movie if you fully buy into the persona of Batman. Sure. As, like, like being cool. Right. Like, you can, like, you have to make him cool, but also you can't, like, buy it. Like, mm-hmm. you have to understand that, like, Batman is a weird coping mechanism of a traumatized person. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's the thing that, like, Tim Burton got. That's the thing that this movie gets. And that's why it works. And I think that's the only way to do Batman in a way that doesn't feel thuddingly conservative. Sure. Is it? I mean, you could also go nipple suit Arnold Schwarzenegger ice puns, which... To this day, remains my favorite Batman movie. Uh, that's fine. I'm gonna rewatch it. I rewatched Batman Forever. I went home from, like, the Batman the day after I watched the Batman. I rewatched Batman Forever. <laughs> um, wild movie. Uh, I will rewatch Batman and Robin at some point in the near future because this is what I'm thinking about God, now. I love Batman and Robin. I love Batman oh. and Robin so much. We had a poster of it in our garage when I was growing up. Oh God, no! I remember that poster. Like iconic the, movie. All this is the other thing about. The, this movie, The Batman, is that, like, in the lead-up to this movie, I have been very down on this movie. Sure. Um, I, like, did not like any of the aesthetic choices it was making. Mm-hmm. I thought, like, none of this works. I still kind of think, like, 
I should hate this movie. Because, mm-hmm. like, I would not make any of these choices sure. other than the idea that Batman is a weird outcast. Mm-hmm. But, like, but watching the movie, I was like, oh, but you're doing them all very well. Mm-hmm. Like, no, you're doing it right. Part of the reason that I hated all the aesthetic choices is I thought, well, they're not going to do them right. Sure. You know, but it's actually really succeeding at the thing that it's trying to do. And it's like, oh, no, no, this works. Yeah, sometimes it's nice to watch something and be like, yeah, I wouldn't have done any of this. I'm in, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, exactly. It looks great. This is my other big thing that I've been thinking about lately. Mm-hmm. Weird, like, obsession or whatever. Is that I feel like at this moment, like, we're at a point wherein, like, A24 and elevated horror aesthetics mm-hmm. are going to creep into modern blockbusters. Yeah, I buy that. Like, like... This movie feels very A24. Like, the title card reminds... It's very A24, I think. And just, like, elevated horror in general. Which I think, like, is smart. Um, A lot of my favorite blockbuster movies that I made... That came out when I was, like, a kid. Like, the early 2000s were all made by horror filmmakers who are now making big blockbuster movies. I think that is, like, a good tack to take. Is to take the aesthetics of horror and put them in, like, a action movie context um because horror is kind of the place where we try out cool new aesthetics Mm -hmm. that's why there's so many horror con that there's so much horror content that's why a lot of indie people start in horror even if horror isn't their thing because you can you can throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall you can be super stylized and just like really go for it and it's like no it's part of the metaphor exactly yeah that sort of stuff and like this movie looks amazing like it looks great it's even, even though you don't like the aesthetic? Even though I don't like the aesthetic. It is the only movie that I've ever seen. Like, do you remember when they announced the new... Or not when they announced it, but, like, there was, like, a press photo of, like, the new Jurassic Park movie? I don't. I But I, you know me. I don't follow, like, movie news specifically. That's true. Well, there was a, this press photo for the new Jurassic Park movie, wherein they were... The gang's all back. Like, sure. the original Jurassic Park Uh, I remember seeing people talk about that. I don't know if I've actually seen the image, though. They're in there. And so, like, in the article that announced this or whatever, they have a screenshot from Jurassic Park and then a screenshot from the new Jurassic World movie of the same three characters. Mm -hmm. And, like, the Jurassic Park scene is very brightly lit, very colorful. Mm -hmm. Um, And the one for the new one is very dark. Yeah, of course it is. Like... Of course it is. Way too dark. And it's just like... You can't really see anything in it. It looks bad. Mm-hmm. And, like, I agree. I hate that. One of the things that I like about season two of The Witcher, if you remember me being obsessed with that a few weeks ago, was, like, well, it looks bright now. Mm-hmm. So, like, I should hate how dark this movie looks. And it looks dark. It is, like, fucking that one battle episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> it is yeah. very... But it is the only thing I have seen that is this dark that knows how to use its darkness. It's still well lit. It's just very high contrast lighting. It's uh, it's actually not that different from like some of like the Batman stuff in the 90s in the way that it uses its shadows and the way that, and like it is a movie about shadows. Like I don't want to spoil too much of this movie because I want you to go in. Like, I, I do want to go see it. It's a really great big screen movie. Uh-huh. It looks great, but also, and this is the most important thing, it sounds great. And they're doing, it's almost an opera, I feel like. The way that, like, it takes all of these, like, musical motifs and, like, kind of just audio motifs, like, and, like, builds them together 
like it's just very well designed on a sound level and i think you want to hear it as intended as intended sure and it becomes this weird thing where like batman movies herald sea changes in blockbuster filmmaking like blockbuster filmmaking is different after batman 89 blockbuster filmmaking is different after the dark knight which is why i'm really excited and interested in this movie that people really like that like has a very distinct visual style watching it it feels like watching the vibe shift but i will say i watched this batman i was obsessed with it i'm also re-watching tim burton movies mm -hmm. and then yesterday i got really high and i watched beetlejuice for the first time because i've never seen beetlejuice i've never seen it either realized how important and seminal that film is it's like one of those things where it's like you understand where all these references came from now yeah not even just references but like cultural things it's kind of the core text for tim burton mm -hmm. um and i was like watching it i was like so i wanted you to understand that yesterday i got really high watched beetlejuice for the first time understood it mm -hmm. and was like afterwards i was like well fuck i have to watch burn notice now <laughs> very different vibes probably very different vibe very different vibes probably the least creatively <laughs> ambitious thing <laughs> that has ever been created That's and then i watched true. Not I've seen creative. FBI. That's true. Woof. No, no, yeah. But like a very creatively unambitious show. Mm -hmm. And then I watched this. Mm -hmm. Yep. The the Beetlejuice of the Fair Notice episodes. <laughs> I, yeah. I I think I said it three times. <laughs> ah, there he is. Yeah, I don't know enough about him to to help with this joke in any way. I do want to point out, though, now that we're 15 minutes into the episode, that if the audio sounds different this week, this is just in case anyone eagle-eared listeners are confused. It's because we've switched mics for the next two weeks because, uh, well... Because I'm a fuck-up and I'm a mess. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a mess. She came over... Your girl's a mess. Your girl's a mess. She came over, we opened the door to her, and she's standing there, and I'm like, hang on. And she we goes, both realize at the same time... <laughs> That I do not have my bag of stuff. Yeah, because usually we record with Christine's mic because she has an omnidirectional mic and I yeah. have a directional one. And so that's obviously better for exactly co-podcasting. Like yeah. right now, the two of us are like looking at this microphone like we're fucking Bruce Springsteen and the other guy yeah. like singing together. <laughs> yeah, the last time this happened was the last time that you forgot your mic when you came over. And I think I was still in, we were still in New York. Right. I think yeah. I, we were still in New York. Right? Yeah, and I, and I, yeah. So a couple of seasons ago, you may remember us having exactly. To... No, I think we've come full circle. <laughs> we we this, truly. This have. was the first season, I think, mm, or early second season. Yeah, early second season. Yeah. I think is probably more accurate. Right. Um, yeah. No, because it was was it when I came back to New York? I think so. I yeah. think it was like the week that you were like back in New York, and we I'm decided like, I, to record some stuff. Together. Exactly. And I like to stay at no ability to plan for that at yeah. all. Yeah, so then she, like, she's like, maybe I left it in the car. So she leaves and I get a call from her. She's like, I didn't. I left it at home. No, here's not even how I said it. Let me be very clear. I said, I think I left it in the car. But here's the thing. I think I probably actually left it at the apartment. Because like, <laughs> I put it all together because I, I realized that a, I didn't have it with me. But I also realized I don't remember putting it in the car. <laughs> and like, I always remember putting it in the car because I place it very carefully so it doesn't get jostled around. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, it's also important to establish that at this point, she was like half an hour late. Half also. an hour late. <laughs> and the, the only final thing I'll say on this is that we had a very long conversation before we turned the microphone on just to kind of like get in the zone because it's daylight savings time day. It's daylight savings time. We're day. fucked, y'all. We're like... <laughs> 
both of us are like, I was up till 4am last night reading, and this is important, a romance novel in which the very first thing that happens, the first piece of catharsis is that the main character's best friend dies in a car accident. And so I'm in a weird headspace. She's late. I haven't heard from her in longer than I assume it takes to drive here. And I like literally I'm walking back from Starbucks with some drinks that I picked up for both of us thinking what I think she might be dead. Should I keep doing this podcast if she's dead? <laughs> and then we had a long conversation about what her wishes, thankfully not dead, but planning for when she will be dead, certainly soon. In the event that I die. <laughs> yes. Now, please put this on the in record. In the event that I die, Brie has to finish editing the episodes that already exist. Mm-hmm. She does not have to record more episodes. She can if she wants to. I will not, like... Haunt me. I will not haunt you. <laughs> like like the cast of Beetlejuice. I will not haunt you. Mm-hmm. But like you do have to finish like the episodes. Mm-hmm. And then you are going to... I have to finish like watching the episodes even if I don't record new ones? No, you have to finish the episodes that we've recorded. Sure, sure, sure. Finish sure. editing them. Brie will put them up on... Lo- like post them all up in kind of a batch drop. Right. Because it feels almost cruel to extend your... You know, right. The week to week schedule. Exactly. Uh, unless people want otherwise, unless people want to live in my like. Are you saying get in the comments to to respond to my exactly. will? Exactly. Is that yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, get in the comments <laughs> to respond to my will. This, ep- <laughs> this episode of Burn Noticed is my last will and testament. Perfect. Um, and I, I, I'm allowed, I'm one of the people that's allowed to vie over her possessions, her seven possessions afterwards. Right. Exactly. You could, like, the government can take my money. Mm hmm. All of my possessions, like, it's a free-for-all. Except for by the government. Except for by the government. The government cannot take my possessions. Hey, Joe Biden, this Yeti, not for you. Right, exactly. Hey, Joe Biden, get your own podcasting equipment. That's true. Why Why don't you have a podcast, Joe Biden? <laughs> he will eventually. That's where all ex-presidents go at this point. No, I think, like, no, I'm kind of surprised genuinely that we don't live in a world where the president has a podcast. Do you think that the president's podcast is just like his weekly address and or no, like yeah. State of the Union? It's just like a yearly podcast. It's like the um, the McElroy's yeah, the, Paul, Till the Death Plum. Do Us Blart. Exactly. It's like that. <laughs> what I'm saying is the State of the Union is To Death Till Us Blart, uh, but for presidents. Exactly. So now that we've settled that, I guess we should talk about this episode that we actually both genuinely do want to talk about because it's fascinating this is a wild episode of burn notice it is the wildest episode of burn notice i as i was watching it i texted joe and tony and i said i think this is the only episode of burn notice that tony should watch (laughs) i think tony should only watch this episode of burn notice it will make absolutely no sense it will make no sense but also like They'll watch it and they'll go, okay, this is actually a pretty good show. And then we'll go, it's never like this. (laughs) So what is it like? Uh, Season seven, episode seven called Psychological Warfare. It aired July 25th, 2013, was written by Ryan Johnson and Peter Lillianis, which I find very strange based on everything we've seen them write before. See, no, I don't find that strange at all. Interesting. All right, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. And it was directed by first-timer Larry Tang, who uh, also currently directs for Nancy Drew on the CW, which is a show that I should be on. Somebody hired me to be on Nancy Drew on the CW. Uh, But he's also kind of just like a, a... 
serial TV director and specifically a director of a lot of procedurals. He's done a lot of work on SWAT, SEAL Team, Elementary, NCIS, Criminal Minds. And I also find that fascinating because I was assuming that they got more of an auteur. But no, he's just like a classic procedural director and they brought him on to do like the most wild <laughs> Burn Notice episode one and done of all time. You thought they'd hired a TV Tim Burton. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like that's true. No, they didn't. It's very odd. It's super odd. So let's just get right into it, folks. The IMDb description for this episode is that Michael postulates and is painstakingly questioned by the very organization he's trying to take down and could reveal damaging secrets when he is drugged. That is... Now what postulates means. Yeah. I don't... I, I'm i pretty sure this was another KGF Vissers joint, because uh, they definitely wrote the longer synopsis, and so... No, this... I don't know what this means. This makes no sense. And... To be fair, this is a wild episode. Yeah. Basically, Michael gets psychologically tortured for an entire episode, and that's it. That's what it... That's the episode. But, yeah, but the thing is, like, there's a way that this episode could have been very standard burn notice. Like, Michael has been tortured before. Like, Michael has been interrogated before. There have been definitely been episodes of burn notice that revolved around interrogation. Mm -hmm. Like, and they're never like this. No, they're never like this. So I want to get into the weeds. Let's get in the weeds. I just, I want to get in them. Let's get in the weeds. Okay, we're in the weeds. So we start at the docks. Ooh, these weeds look different. <laughs> these weeds these look very weed, different. These weeds cast shadows. To be honest, like, I did not at all know what I was getting into with this episode. But as soon as we start with the docks, like, automatically something is different. No. Did you feel that? Yes. No. I mean, I also told you, like, there's an experimental horror uh, episode of Burn Notice. <laughs> that That's what you have to look forward well, to. Well, no, like. It's already being shot differently. It definitely is. Like the way that this doc sequence is covered is super wild and like just not. It, it's it's not even that like it's strange, but there. If you watch it, you're like something feels different. No, yeah, it is like even if you don't have the cinematic, even if you don't have the cinematic language to explain it, it is obviously a different director. Yep, we're a little shots are a little bit wider. Mm -hmm. It's a little more cinematic. Shots yeah. are a little bit wider. Characters are a little bit more to the side of the frame mm -hmm. because it's more cinematic. Like the like director wants to put characters in the frame, like a little more to the side mm -hmm. to have a little more negative space. Mm -hmm. I like everyone's performances are different. Mm -hmm. I like it's one of those things where it's like the writing feels a little bit different too to me, but I don't know how much like that's informed by the direction mm -hmm. and the like performances and sure, like sure, the, sure. the you know everything. Yeah, how much of it is the director, how much of it is the writers. But yeah, so anyway, so the docs are uh, a, just a quick, quick, a quick. A quick, a we, quick. We just have a quick little scene at the docks where Michael is uh, waiting to meet up with Fee uh, wearing pants that are bunched up to perfectly outline his butt cheeks. I don't know if you noticed this. It looked like he was like trying to hold in poop, you know, like you're clenching. And like you can see his perfectly defined butt in his khakis and in in the first like sweeping wide shot. I was so distracted. <laughs> I did not notice this. I'll have to check it yeah, out. Yeah, just like the first couple of shots of this episode, it's like something is going weird with the fit of his pants and it's just an outline of his ass. But right. anyways, he looks great. Got a good ass. Uh, anyway, so if he comes up and basically the only purpose of this scene is for him to just like lay it out on the table like, hey, by the way, I slept with Sonia. And he's like, what the fuck are you telling me this for? And he's like, I just, I don't want there to be any secrets. I want it to be above board. Like I 
and, and like the voiceover is kind of talking about like you know how it, how far is too far to go to establish your cover and like build trust and he's basically just all screwed up and he just he doesn't want there to, this to be a thing in my mind i read this as michael doesn't want this to be yet another thing that fee has to learn from someone else right. or in a bad way he's like i just want to tell her right away yeah no that's how it's played i will mm-hmm. say this is a very standard burn notice scene for this season. Mm-hmm. Very standard scene. They are somehow playing it with emotions that they have never played before. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I was I was captivated by this scene. They are like, these feel like different people somehow. Mm-hmm. Or like the same people that have completely different emotion, like colors of emotions. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they feel much more human. Mm-hmm. Than they normally yeah, do. Yeah, it's not so cartoony action figure. Right, exactly. And it's not so like But it's not so overwrought that you're like, okay, right. dial it back, friends. No, there's like a groundedness to it that is not um Yeah, despite this being a very not grounded episode, it also does feel very grounded. But that's actually kind of where genre stuff was going. That's true. At that time was like performances are grounded. The world is a little more grounded, but, like, uh, the presentation is a little more heightened. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, that's definitely how I would describe this episode. So that's basically the the scene. She's like, okay, well, I'm upset and leaves. And Michael looks mournfully after her. Then Michael <laughs> works on his cover letter for Sonia's, hey, I'll introduce you to my boss, but you have to write everything down. And this is, like, the main premise of the episode is that Michael, because he's a spy, obviously doesn't have, like, a regular CV. So he is tasked with writing down basically his entire life story professionally and it seems like otherwise in a bunch of yellow legal pads just like handwriting it which seems insane but okay it seems the thing is it seems insane it's aesthetically way better than him typing it's aesthetically so much better like Mm -hmm. everything about this is like evocative it's vibes it's Mm -hmm. evocative as hell even though it's like ridiculous that it's happening (laughs) like it's only art yeah it is and you know what i can't even be mad at them i was like no this looks good like like there's a there's a good shot of like this is kind of a shot in montage and there's like a a, an insert of like the stack of notebooks getting bigger as he like slams the next one down and moves on here's the thing this is the tone of the batman (laughs) what a weird week for you yeah like yeah, so it's it's wild. But yeah, so he's doing this and he's eating a yogurt. First he's yogurt eating a yogurt. While. It's very good. He's eating a yogurt. He's writing his little cover letter. Sonia comes home with groceries and they're acting very coupley. And then he's he he kind of like asks her like, hey, should I tell them that we fucked? And she's like, yes, <laughs> you should. <laughs> he's like, okay. And he writes it down and then she tases him to knock him out. <laughs> like, it is a thing where she says like, we kiss when we kiss we tell or something like that yeah something which implies that this is a thing that happens you know Mm -hmm. like in this cult because it's a cult yeah i really love that it's a cult Mm -hmm. like in a lot of ways and like this guy is playing cult leader oh he fully is i feel like he's played a cult leader before too this guy's in everything no yeah he's great the thing is like he's playing a really good cult leader we're saying he. we're getting him in the next we're getting him next he's playing a really good cult leader in a way that like you buy white people like, because there's two ways to play a cult leader. You play it as, like, you play it for the audience that is not susceptible to the cult. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, this person's outrageous. Or you play it as, like, 
someone who could be seduced by this person where you sure. want to understand the seductiveness of them and right? i do like that we've led with like the loyalty aspect of it and yeah. like building up michael's loyalty and like that being a really important facet of like what they need and what is integral to him right and i do buy it and honestly like watching this whole sequence and next episode i'm like kind of disappointed we've never had a cult leader before because right. i feel like a cult is perfect fodder for spycraft but the thing about because it's more it's it's more like nebulous than straight up just you know buying weapons. Well, the thing is that like this show, I think, could not have pulled it off. I think the reason they haven't is because the only way it works is if you do this thing that this episode does. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's really interesting to like look at this episode in context of the weird serial killer episode. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like that you liked and I kind of hated. And I mean, I liked because it was, I I liked detached, you know, like objectively looking at it, it's a bad episode. No, but it was like a thing of like. But I enjoyed the, like the construction enough that I'm like, I'll have a good time with this. Well, like, but I think my big complaint on that episode was like, it's not. Committed enough? Committed enough. Mm -hmm. I think I remember you saying that. It's not committed enough. And it for sure wasn't. Exactly. And so it doesn't work because it's not committed enough. Mm Mm-hmm. This like, is committed. This is committed. Like, this is why, like, they couldn't have done this before now, because they never would have been willing to commit to this. It's true, but it's like, I couldn't that have been a cool long-term season of, like, they're kind of infiltrating a cult yeah. and, like, you know, having the different characters feeling conflicted, because, like, I and I do, I am excited about the rest of this season, because it does seem like what they're doing is they're they're letting, they're mucking around in the gray a lot more than they normally would on Burn Notice, where it's like, I mean, some of the stuff we're doing for them is actually good, and I would like to do that. Yeah. But also, this is all incredibly fucked, and, like, that complexity is more yeah. interesting than what we're normally given. Like, I, I had a moment when I was watching this episode and I was like, huh, is this the first time that Burn Notice has portrayed the subjective experience of psychoac- psychoactive drugs? And then I s- stopped and I thought, wait, hold on. Is this the first time that Burn Notice has portrayed subjective experience? <laughs> I think so. I think we've had a couple of like, somebody's been hit in the head and we might get like a POV shot with like a shaky cam. But I don't, yeah, I don't think we've ever gone this deep into somebody's subconscious before. Exactly. Like that is not how this show works. It's, yeah, from like, right from the get-go, it's like something else is happening. And I'm a hundred percent down so that's the that's the cold open after the cold open is when we meet the person that we're talking about our our cult leader whose name is james kendrick though i don't think we learn his full name until we learn kendrick next week yeah we learn kendrick next week we learn james at the end of this episode but for the purposes of recapping this will be easier he's played um by a guy uh whose name is john piper ferguson great name that's a great name and and piper is spelled p-y-p-e-r which is even more excellent and it's hyphenated it's hyphenated there's a y in there like it's a good name it's a good name and he's a good actor i've seen him in a lot of stuff and like he brings really good kind of creepy energy into all of his parts and i think he's doing a great they have stylized him as sexy charles manson oh for sure yeah like the long hair the like calm you know he's even got the same face shape as as that dude now that i'm thinking about that. right but anyways post cold open we start on a blindfolded and disoriented michael allen weston confirmed from the trivia this is the first time we've ever heard michael's middle name so michael weston's middle name is allen my dad's middle name is also allen yeah i don't know how to process that <laughs> 
well, uh, let's inject you with some heavy hallucinogens and we'll figure that out later. Um, but anyways, Michael Allen Weston is brought to the big boy, James Kendrick. Um, and basically he's like, I want to know everything. And Michael's like, I wrote you so many letters. And he's like, yeah, I know. I, I just have some questions. And so they start off slow. It's like, you know, Michael's being defensive and like, where are we? What's going on? I want to be a part of this. I've proven myself. And John Piper Perkins is like, uh, let's, you know, let's take it slow. We're getting to know each other. And so at first it's very like calm. And then we have a hard cut as like we get a couple of just like basic questions in to Michael in the middle of a big white room with like flashing like strobe lights and like a alarm sound. And Michael like kneeling in the middle of a room with his hands to his ears, like clearly being kept. And they, they say like he's being kept awake. And the what I do like about this episode is that they never really clarify the timeline. No. It's been a while though like by the end because like at a, in the next scene uh, or a couple of scenes later we learn he's been missing since Thursday but they don't ever clarify what day it actually is and right. so it leaves us kind of unmoored and like discomforted with like where how long has this been going on like you know if he was just talking to a guy for an hour and they put him in this room that probably sucks but like then Michael in the voiceover says like they're trying to keep me awake they're doing sleep deprivation right. and it's like okay well then he must have been there for a while but it's also a thing of like, the way that this is cut, it could be a thing that they're doing sessions, mm-hmm. and in between sessions, he is getting bombarded in this room. Mm-hmm. It also could be that they did a bunch of sessions and then just threw him in the room, mm-hmm. and then he's just in the room for multiple days. Mm-hmm. Like, the way that it's cut is ambiguous enough that it could kind of be both, mm-hmm. and I was starting to wonder that. Mm-hmm. And, like, never before in an episode of Burn Notice is that a thing that, like, would be a thing. Yeah, and I, I really like it. Like, I'm instantly uncomfortable and nervous and, like, off my game because I'm like, this is, even Michael Weston, like, the fact that I don't know what the timeline is means that, like, it could be anything and that's probably his subjective this experience is, as this well. This is what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. we have seen Michael Weston be tortured before mm-hmm. and we watch it and we go, we watch Michael Weston be tortured. And we see it in a fairly linear fashion. We see usually. it in a very fairly linear fashion. We see it in a fairly objective fashion Mm -hmm. like whereas again this is very subjective like so the room is bright but it's also brighter than it would be in a normal episode of burn notice Mm -hmm. like because it wants to communicate the idea of what it feels like to be in this bright room Mm -hmm. and like the camera is kind of dutchy and like changing around and like you know and and he's in this very weird position where it's like at the at first he's like kneeling he's like on his knees with like his hands to his ears he's not sitting he's not against a wall he is in the center of a room kneeling with his hands over his ears like looking like he's starting to lose it and it like that the positioning is so uncomfortable and so unnatural and just like every part of it is like this all sucks and i'm so on my like on the edge and i love that it's really good. It's very it's effective. so good. Very effective. Oh, the, the one thing that happens, because we're kind of like cutting back and forth through this for a little while, uh, they do mention the uh, pilot episode. Um, they do. Which I liked and I remembered. And I was like, oh, remember when the filmmaking was bad on Burn Notice? Right. And then we hard cut to this episode and it's like art, poetic cinema. 
So um, then we head back out into the real world where we watch Madeline and Charlie play with dinosaurs when a worried Jesse, doing basically the only thing he does in this episode, um, wanders in and is like, hey, have you uh, seen Michael? And <laughs> Madeline gives him a look and is like, Charlie, go do something else. And Madeline goes up to Jesse. She's like, Jesse, what the fuck is going on? He's like, oh, nothing. I just wanted, you know, to know if you see. And she's like, do not fuck with me, Jesse. What is going on? I don't make me yell at you in front of Charlie. And Jesse's like, mm, we haven't heard from Mike in a while. Here's a question. <laughs> if he calls you, let me know. Here's a question mm-hmm. that I had a little bit watching this episode, also watching next week's episode. I have no idea what Michael's legal status is, like, at all. Because, mm-hmm. yeah. like... If he's, like, a ghost, if he is a U.S. citizen, if he's on a no-fly list, if he's legally dead. Like, because it seems as if like, also just, like, status at any point, like, in terms of both the CIA mm-hmm. and this James organization, where it seems like there's a lot of time when he is just hanging out, mm-hmm. like, doing, running errands and stuff, like, living. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait, are things back to normal now? Right. Like, what's happening? Like, do you have a social security card? Do you pay taxes? Like, yeah. what's your deal? Exactly. It's like... Are you, so are you just living at the loft again? Like, are you, like, living, like, what is going on? Yeah, they've never really been clear about yeah. that. The, the, those details do not interest them. But it's a good question, because I don't know. I he I think he has to be something, based on what I know will happen in sometime near the finale. But in any case, um, th- this scene serves as just, like, the bookend scene with Madeline because we we end the episode at her place too with Charlie where Jesse's just like Jesse confirms Michael's been missing for a while we don't know what a while means he just says since Thursday and like I said we don't know what day it is currently right but it's been a couple of days people are starting to get nervous because he's not calling them back and so Madeline's like if he calls like I'll let you know because Michael this is the thing that's weird is it's like because it seems like he's still doing this op but also, he's home. Mm-hmm. Like he's in this he, weird sort of middle ground, like, like liminal space. Exactly. It's like, is he doing other jobs right now? Is he only doing this? Like people, people are like, we haven't seen Michael in a couple of days. Well, it's like, bro, you have not seen Michael for in a couple of months for a while. Like it was kind of mm-hmm. like. What are your expectations of how much you're going to be seeing Michael right now? Well, enough that, like, strong, strong-armed, wink-wink, Fiona into helping him. Like, they know that they are embroiled in some way. They also know that some of them have been directly implicated as Michael's regular contacts within this organization. Right. So I think they have a general expectation that, like, this is weird. It's like one or two days, I think they would probably like write off as like, I don't know, maybe he's out. But then like, at a certain point, they're starting to get nervous because they would have expected even if he was doing a job, he would have called them. Yeah. So I, 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 I that um, non not sureness is also in the soup. And yeah, I like exactly. That. That's the thing is, it really works for me in this episode. Mm-hmm. But it also makes it like very hard to figure out where the season is going. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm also I'm at this point in the season, even with next week, I kind of don't know 100% where we're going. Right. And I love that. I actually genuinely am like excited to find out. So anyway, so Jesse mentions that Sam and Fee are out looking for him more directly. So they'll check back in with Madeline once they learn something. Speaking of Sam and Fee, they are staking out the loft and catch Sonia and some big guy taking a bunch of shit out in boxes, which is interesting because he has enough possessions left in that burnt out fucking loft to bring out that many boxes. But they're clearing it out. They don't know what that means. And Fee's like really hardcore, like we should follow her. And Sam's like, 
Strong told us not to interfere. And she's like, fuck Strong. We're going to follow them. And Sam's like, okay. It's not the first time that she said, fuck Strong. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not. Remember that scene a couple of seasons ago where they, like, have a fight scene and then they collapse into bed and (laughs) have sex? Like, I love them. I miss them. I can't wait for them to be back together. I hate this. Anyways, so, yeah. So, Fee and and Sam are basically on Sonya's tail because they're like, probably she will lead us to Michael eventually or lead us to some new information so that we can figure out what the fuck is going on. So, speaking of Michael... Uh, he looks like shit, but according to, uh, what's his name? James. James. Yeah, girls love cool video, James. Um, the first part is over, and now it's time for Truth Serum, essentially, uh, which is a combination of benzo and a hallucinogen, and Michael clarifies in voiceover, like, drugs can't, like, compel you to tell the truth, but they can make it a lot harder to lie, which I like as a distinction. And so they basically inject him and throw him back into, like, the white torture room yeah so they 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 throw him back into like his jail cell and he's like sweating and like so it's clearly been a while (laughs) like however long it's been it's been too long and instantly he's on drugs and his hallucinates he he instantly he is on drugs and hallucinates fiona yeah exactly like there's no hesitation like they put drugs in his system and he's like he is an angel (laughs) no and she is shot like an angel Mm -hmm. and like a dark red dress amazing red dress that really pops against the white Mm -hmm. like the fucking last jedi episode looks amazing Mm -hmm. it looks Uh, really really good and like jeffrey donovan looks like shit but not in like an overwrought way like he normally would like jeffrey donovan's fucking working it exactly no there's a groundedness to it that works. I also like that they're letting him just be nasty. Yeah, they're letting him be just really nasty. And Dirty, kinda... sweaty, wet. Here's the thing. This is kind of the bad man. <laughs> One thing I will say, though, is that w- the thing that kind of takes me out of the timeline of whatever is going on is that he's clean shaven the whole episode. Right, that's true. So that's that's my only comment. And the only reason I even noticed that is because you know me and I like Michael Weston with a little bit of shrug. No, of course. Scruffle. A little scruffle. They don't have time for it. Yeah, and I get No, that. no. They don't have time for it. Would have been amazing if James shaved him. <laughs> I actually, in the back of my head, as I was looking at the screenshot I just pulled out to show you, that was also my thought. I was like, I wonder if they're shaving him. But, like, like, not letting him change clothes. How fucked up is that? No, exactly. Like, yeah, like, no. James comes in, shaves him with a straight razor. Oh, yeah, 100%. Of course. Like, you know? Um, Because, again, like, he is very beardy, but it's also very quaffed and very carefully Mm -hmm. cared for. Yeah. Like... This, this is a man who understands facial hair. Mm-hmm. And, like, he is going to... I'm just, like, imagining the scene so hard in my head. Because the thing is that, like... Normally, we will be talking about an episode of Burn Notice. And then we would pitch... We'll pitch wild things like that. Mm-hmm. Where it's, like... I mean, they would never do this, but it would be really fun if he shaved him. Yeah, But it's, exactly. like... In this episode, he could have shaved him. Like, it would have felt consistent, tonally. Oh, yeah. You know what? At this point, I actually consider that canon. It's the only thing that makes sense. Exactly. Um, I I am sad that I didn't get to see Scrappy Michael Weston, though. That's, like, that's my thing. Well, no, because he has to be vulnerable. I know, but I like him. He's got to look boyish. I know, but... Like, he, like... I... Listen. Listen. I know. I know. It doesn't make me any happier. We have to move on. We're 45 minutes in, and we've got, like, 10 seconds into the episode. (laughs) 
episode's gonna be long. It's I like, know, and that's fine, but like, give me a going. second. Let's get going. Yeah, so, so oh yeah, do you want to take a drink? <clears throat> this is gonna be as long as the Bad Breaks episode. Like, yeah, for I sure. have no idea how long the Bad Breaks episode is. I'm assuming it's long. Yeah, probably. Uh, okay, so. <laughs> After after he has his fee hallucination, he's like, I need your help, fee. I can't do this. And she's, you know, enigmatic at him and his brain. They bring him back to the interrogation room. Um, we, we learn later that they're they're not in like a compound. They're in like a mansion. Of course, they're in a mansion. <laughs> they're like on a mansion on a peninsula where right. there's only one entrance and exit. And it's like guarded by guards. Because it's a horror movie. It's like a haunted house. It's yeah, like, for sure. But so they're, they're in like, like a Wayne study. Manor. <laughs> okay, you have to stop. <laughs> uh, but they're in like a study. The main interrogation room is like a study. And there's like bookcases and like big bay windows and all this sort of stuff. And like a, you know, a desk. And that's where he does his studying. Yeah. But anyway, so the phase two of this interview is... James a- rules. <laughs> I join his cult. <laughs> Honestly, probably same. No, here's the thing I've realized about me as a person. Yeah. Is that like... I am a very specific type of person wherein, like, I am kind of really drawn to and obsessed with people who could be cult leaders, but also would never join their cult. Sure. Where it's like, because I'm really interested in them, but also I don't respect them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I respect them as people, but, like, only as people, I don't, like, cede any authority to them. Right. You'll go to the barbecue, but you won't spend the night. Of course. And I'm, like, I see through their bullshit because it's bullshit, but I think it's fascinating bullshit. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're friends. Yeah. I was I was waiting for that turn to happen. So yeah. this next stage of the interview is specifically not about, like, the details of his job history, but more specifically about the details of his dark passenger evolution, <laughs> for lack of a better phrasing. Right. And he's basically, like... You were an okay spy for a couple of years, and then you became a really good spy. What's up? Where'd that happen? And of course, knowing, I think we mentioned last week that I I saw Larry in like the screenshot, and then we were like, is he dead? I start to realize at this point, oh, this is why Larry's back. And um, in some ways, I find this scene to be too little too late. I'm not upset that it's here in this in this no, episode. It's a great episode. I think we've talked about this before in other episodes like this, where they execute this idea well, where it's like, yeah, but it's too late for it. Where, mm-hmm. like, like, basically, they went backwards with Michael Weston's character development. Like, all the character development comes at the end and is supposed to inform the previous seasons. Yeah. But you, that's not how that works. No, it's, no, you would never Emotional, do it like, it, like, it has to be emotionally linear, even right. if it's not, like, literally linear. Exactly. You know what I mean? Burn notice writers? Apparently yeah. not. But anyways, um, basically, like... As soon as he's like, what happened around this time of your life that, like, changed the way you approach spy work? Like, instantly we hear Larry's voice and it's like, oh, shit. And then Michael is, like, sweating and, like, drugged out in this this armchair in the study. And all of a sudden snow starts falling in the study to, like, transition him to a, a scene in the woods where he's camping with Larry. And it's fucking beautiful. It's wild. It's so good. And this is when I noticed that all every time that we see Michael like in one of his flashbacks, he's wearing the non-sweat through version of the, what he's wearing in his interrogation. Well, he doesn't change outfits per no. like thing. No, yeah. He's like the he's, thing is, he's Michael Weston in the present being transported backwards. No, of course. The thing is that like 
it kind of operates on Christmas Carol rules Mm -hmm. where like visions are coming and visiting him and he's like being transported into the world. But like, yeah, he's like wearing the nightgown and like the whole time. He's like, yeah, like that's the kind of story that this is. This is a Christmas Carol type story. Mm -hmm. It's very, very good. It's It's a wonderful life type story, that kind of story. So yeah, so that that happens. And we see just like a little scene where Larry like is just taking credit for like, haha, I've built you up much better than you ever were. And then Michael in his like, shroomed state is like arguing with Larry and trying not to mention him. I don't understand why that this is one thing that I didn't understand about this episode is like, why did he not want to mention Larry? No, here's the thing, actually. Because I remember watching this scene and being like, oh, this is the one time that it has to be Larry and it cannot be Lucy Lawless. Mm -hmm. And I realized they do a thing here that the show never really did, which is draw a clear line between Larry and his dad. Mm -hmm. And they don't overdo it. They don't have Michael go like, Larry is, ah, just like my dad. He's another abusive dad. Mm -hmm. You know? They just kind of let the parallel sit there. Mm-hmm. But like, it's like, oh, no, it has to be Larry because he is he's a daddy issues boy. Mm-hmm. And that, that also like so almost like, retroactively makes Tom Card more interesting, too. Exactly. Like, it's this weird thing of like, this has all been in the show. They just never did it. Like, mm-hmm. they never really like drew like they would talk about it. But they never, because they never wanted to, like, delve into the subjective experience of Michael, Mm -hmm. they never really made any of these connections work or land or anything. Like, is this the first time later in the episode Mm -hmm. that we ever see Papa Wesson? Yep. The only time that he's ever cast. Exactly. And it's Um, only the second time we've ever seen a flashback in Burnout. Exactly. The first time. In episode two of this season. This season. This season, they suddenly discovered that they could do flashbacks. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was a studio thing or like a network thing. I don't know either. And it's like, I don't even think I necessarily needed it. But also, I kind of like it because we actually get to like see rather than be told about like traumatic incidents from Michael's past. Here's the thing about this episode. It is in some ways the most frustrating episode of Burn Notice to exist Mm -hmm. because it's like, we could have been doing this the whole time. Yeah. Like, watching this season of Burn Notice, it's like, we could have been doing this the whole time. Why, in the very end, are we now suddenly becoming a television show? <laughs> At one point, I texted you and I said, what if this is the only good episode of Burn Notice? Which we know is not true because we've enjoyed several episodes. In the I past. know. No, and, I and enjoyed. You, and then you later, like an hour, like half an hour later, you're like, "What if this is the only good season of Burn Notice?" Right. And that I don't have a response to because I think you're probably no, right. no. It's definitely the only good season of Burn Notice. <laughs> but like, I was like, "What if this is the only good episode of Burn Notice?" Where it's like, like this episode breaks the curve. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like because every episode of like Burn Notice that I'm watching, even ones that I like a lot. Even, like, Bad Breaks, even um, Fearless Leader, I am grading on a curve a little. Sure. You know. This is good for a show like Burn Notice. Exactly. Where it's like, this this I'm not grading on a curve. This is just like, oh, this is a very well put together episode of television. Like, you know, the thing is, this is literally the kind of episode of television that great episode of television was created for. Like, 100%. Like, yeah. literally, like, this is the thing that, like, when we were coming up with the rubric and, like, coming up with all these designations, this is the kind of episode of television that I had in mind. And here's what I'll say is you can't do this every week. No, you can't do this every week. And I do think that it's important in our, you know, effusive praise of this episode to remember that, like, we went into this 
to kind of look at procedural television and yes. love it. And I think an important distinction to be made between like, why weren't they doing this the whole time? Is it's not about like, they should be doing an experimental horror film every week, diving yeah, into the psychological torment of Michael Wesson as a character. But the fact that there is emotional resonance and consistency and like, we're drawing parallels between disparate parts of the plot that in hindsight, of course, make sense as like pieces of a full puzzle that could have been done at any time, even during a like traditional procedural episode. Like the thing is that like the understanding of Michael Weston as a character in this episode could have been universally applied. It definitely could have. And also like, they don't have to do this every week, but they can be more creatively ambitious every week. And even if they're not doing this every week, you can definitely do this once a season. For sure. Like, or once or twice a season where it's like, like if you're watching, because like talking about the distinction between like procedurals and like shows I was like calling like monster of the week type shows, mm-hmm. like things like that, like, like watching this season, this is the only season of Burn Notice that I have like experienced like it is a season of Doctor Who. We're in like, there's episodes of varying quality and like, but part of that is because and every once in a while, you get a really cool, weird experiment. Mm-hmm. You know? It's a more it's, ambitious season. It's more ambitious. It's more varied in the kinds of things that we are shown from week to week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and you do need to have sort of the backbone of, like, a traditional procedural to kind of, like, have earned it. You know, it's like you can't break a structure if you didn't establish one. You can't, yeah. like, break a rule unless you know what it is. Um, but I we, agree that we could have been doing this more often. And the maturity of the narrative that we see here definitely could have been imbued in other parts of other seasons. I may have talked about this before, but uh, Emily St. James has a term that she calls procedural world building. I don't know if you have talked about that. Um, Which I love as a term. And it's like about generally first seasons of genre shows Mm -hmm. have how like early on, like... You can't do episodes like this. No. Um, If you try to do episodes like this too soon, it doesn't work. I think, like, a lot of problems that come from modern television is, like, trying to do this too quickly without earning it. Which means that, like, for the first part of your show, you kind of have to be a procedural. Just because we have to, like, set the rhythms Mm -hmm. and we have to, like, understand what the world is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just have to learn the world. Exactly. And we have to learn the world by watching the characters go through procedures. Mm -hmm. Like, in some sense, like... We're setting the status quo. Exactly. In some sense, like, when you're making television, you have to have multiple episodes of Act One, Mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, you kind of have to stay in the first couple steps of the hero's journey for season one for the rest of the hero's journey to hit the way it needs to. Exactly. And just, like, yeah, or even just, like, the way that these relationships hit, like... Exactly. Like, so you can't do this every week. No. But again, you can do it like two or three times a season. Like mm-hmm. that is a that is a proven model of television. Mm-hmm. And like, we give Bernos a lot of shit, but it could have been doing this by seasons, like late season two, season three. Exactly. For sure. Right. Like, For totally. Sure. Like, this is the sort of television episode that like this kind of show would normally do like midway through season two mm-hmm. that now gets done midway through season one. Yeah. I don't know if that's better or worse, but that is a change in the way that television works now. I think it's worse because it means that we are less willing 
to approach television as television, which is a grand experiment where you get to try something new every week. Yeah, exactly. Over a long period of time and grow. Like the the loveliness of TV is that the art comes from the exploration. Yes. And I don't. Why I love television. Exactly. And that's and but like nobody wants to do that anymore. They want it to be like a perfectly, you know, tied up in a bow, complete narrative right away. Exactly. And I don't think that's fair. I think it's like it's great when people have a vision that takes them through, you know, like um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend had like they they'd always intended it to be four seasons, basically. And they had a general idea of where that would go. But also, you know, midway through season two, one of their primary love interests left. And that was unplanned. And the way that they wove it, wove that into the experiment, I think really worked. Right. And it's like you can't do that in film. And you can't treat television like film and then still have that kind of a thing happen. Right. Like, let TV be fucking TV, y'all. And, like, I feel like I see that a little bit more now. I think we're getting that back. Do you? I do. I feel like we're we're not getting shows that last long enough to be that way. I mean, like, I think do think it is a thing that, like, we will never get, like, 22, 26 episodes of television, seasons of television again. And, like... It's a shame. It's a shame, but also I understand that like that's that kind of schedule is wild. Like, sure. Like, I think it is a thing that like it's very easy for me as like a viewer of television to be like they need to make twenty two episodes. Like, but like anything I have heard from like people who crew television shows, yeah, they say like it's brutal. It's brutal. It's awful. It's kind of abusive that this was that this is a thing that exists. I feel like, like though that's more that's less to do with you're doing that many episode and that's more to do with like. Everyone who produces television seems to act like you can't make it unless you spend 24 hours a day on set. Right. That's not, you're not fucking rocket scientists. Like, it's fine if it, if you only do eight hours a day and stick to that. Like, that doesn't have to be punishing. Yeah. Yeah, TV will take longer to come out, but it's fucking TV. Exactly. Like, it's sort of. (laughs) Stagger it. It's like crunch time and video game making. Exactly. It's like, like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to build crunch into your system. Mm. Like. Don't do that. Yeah. Like, and, and that's, this is a longer conversation that we like, can't get into right now. But yes, we both love TV. We wish we'd let P- TV be TV. I'm grateful that this episode exists. I think like, I honestly really love like the model of like the 13 episode season. I would say 13 like, to like 16. I'd say like, honestly, like. Because 13, I sp- still feel like you don't get as much time to experiment in because like everything has to be do. so tightly I think, like, serialized. See, I kind of think like, a th- but like the thing is really tightly serialized shows, the kind that I don't like as much mm-hmm. are like now like six to eight episodes. I was going to say eight. Yeah. Like six to eight episodes. Like that is like that thing now. So now when you watch like a 13 episode like show, it's like, well, no, we still have time for like kind of. I want time for tomfoolery episodes. But the thing is, like, you can do that in a 13-episode season. I guess. You can, like, you don't get as many episodes of those, but Mm -hmm. you do get them. That's fair. Like. That's fair. All right. I'll give you that. We have to move on. All right. (laughs) We have to move on. Um, But, yeah, so so this is where we, we stopped. From your perspective, why is Michael holding back telling him about Larry? Why doesn't he just say, like, oh, yeah, I met a guy who was, like, fucking brutal, and then eventually I got over it. Like, you know, I, I decided his way was wrong. Like, why doesn't he want to say Larry out loud? Because, like, this scene ends with him well, after he's arguing with Larry in his head about, like, you know, just all sorts of stuff. He screams Larry into well, the darkness. Because they, they killed a bunch of people. Right. But these are bad guys. Does he not? Well, no, they're not all bad guys, right? No, 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 no. I mean, the people he's talking to right now. Why doesn't he want to reveal to cult leader James that Larry is the reason that he had well, a no, because change? this is the 
this is like a trauma moment. This is like trauma. Uh, okay. Like okay. The, the point the point they're making at is that like this is trauma. Mm-hmm. Like this and, is and trauma. And it's not that he doesn't want to get into it because he literally doesn't want to get into it. And he's like, you can use this against me. It's that Michael Weston as a human being doesn't want to deal with it. Right. Exactly. Okay. The thing is that, like, and. Yeah, that they, tracks for me. And like the thing is that also like, and he puts the trauma on Larry in the same way that he puts the trauma on his dad. Mm-hmm. And like, it, there's a parallel there. It's like, there, these are the dad figures. The dad, like the dad abuses me and forces me to do terrible things that I hate. Mm-hmm. Like that is the thing that's going on here. Okay. I like that. That That's, that's a good distinction. But yeah. So, um, so like, as he's like, yelling in his head with Larry he screams Larry's name into the study and James is like ooh what's up who's Larry and uh, Michael admits he doesn't like to talk about Larry because like fundamentally he was afraid that he was becoming like Larry and not just that but he was beginning to like being right. like Larry and that is something that he doesn't like to admit. And honestly, I don't even know if he has admitted that before. I think Larry in real life was always trying to get him to say that. And Michael always maintained this like, you're a monster. I was a monster when I was with you. I'm not, I'm nothing like you. And this is, I think, the first time Michael acknowledges out loud that like there was a time where he wasn't going through the motions. He actually did think this maybe could be his thing. I mean, I feel like they kind of alluded to it. It's one of those but things they, where but it's it was like, always alluded to by Larry and who no, is I think like traditionally the, like not good, an unreliable narrator. No, I think they kind of do. I think in the, the first Larry episode, they kind of do. I think the thing is that like we've never bought it. Sure. I think a lot of the things about this episode are things that the show has done before, but in a way where you never buy it. And like because you kind of need to make the episode be like this in order to buy it. And they have never committed to the episode being like this before. Yeah, that's fair. But um, yeah, that's that's something that I like, that did pick up. This episode ends on like my least favorite thing that Burn Notice does. Mm-hmm. And like, I think it kind of works in this episode. I was going to ask you about that because I it hit me. And then like, I, I have a note about like it hitting me in like the same weird way it always does. But then I like, as I've been thinking about it, I'm like, how else do you talk about it? Right. No, but this is the thing is because this is the only episode that really handles it right. Mm-hmm. Like, and like, it does make sense. Like where it's like, okay, we, we, we'll get to we'll, that when we get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that scene next scene. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so he, he admits that he, he was kind of liking Larry's point of view for a while and it's very painful for him to talk about that. So uh, then we move on to go back to Fee and Sam as they watch Sonia and her friend go incinerate Michael's shit for some reason. And they're like, should we stop them? No, I guess not. We shouldn't let them see. And so then they discuss like how they almost lost them in their pursuit. And so the, the Sam and Fee discuss like we should bug her car. We should like, you know, track her car somehow. And they're like, yeah, but she's too good of a super spy. Like she'll notice it. And so then Fee's like, well, I have like an infrared thing. It's a infrared strobe that we can use and use like a special... Um, sight piece to see the strobe, you know, from far away. Um, and Sam's like, where the fuck did you get that? And she's like, don't worry about it. Right. <laughs> I just have it. Uh, and so we just get a little scene um, where Fee plants an infrared thing into a power source on the car and then like dives out of the way as Sonia and her friend drive off. All of these scenes of Fee and Sam are much more standard burn notice scenes, mm-hmm. but also feel kind of different. And then like, there's still a weird contrast. Mm-hmm. It still feel a little weird to cut from these scenes to all the weird stuff. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, all of this 
also feels different. Well, because I'm stressed out knowing what's going on with Michael and I know they're stressed out. And like the fact that Fee is like, we have to find him. No, I will take a risk. We have to find him with still not acknowledging like how much Michael matters to her because she's still hurt. But it's that thing where just like everything feels slightly tonally different. Mm -hmm. Like this scene is a very common burn notice scene. It just feels slightly tonally different in a way that's frankly hard to fully describe. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it, it it honestly it's just a vibe. But like every even these scenes with Sam and Fee, like there's a pit in my stomach, and I'm like, I hope they find him, and I'm like upset on their behalf at how worried I know they are. Right. And I have never felt that way before, even when like our friends have been kidnapped in these previous right. episodes. Like this feels different, and I hate it. Uh, and I love it because it's great. Right. So back with um. Back into the interrogation room, James has looked into Larry and seems very excited. Like, who was Larry to you, Michael? And Michael, like, reveals... uh, Oh, and then then James asks specifically about their last mission together. Like, not only who was Larry, but what made you stop being with Larry? And Michael, like, is hallucinated back into somewhere. I don't remember where they say it was. But their last mission, um, essentially, they, like, tortured a bunch of locals to find a person who betrayed them like they had like a contact like a lieutenant or something who betrayed them and they had to hunt him down before he could like blow their cover and fuck up their op and larry and michael like tortured a bunch of people to find out where this guy had gone and then when they figured it out it was like a building and michael like put a bomb in the building and didn't care about civilian casualties and like there's a back and forth in the flashback where he and larry argue about like whether michael knew that there were like civilians in there or not and michael's kind of like denying it and being vague and he's like i didn't realize blah blah blah. and he's like i knew when i didn't care like it ends on a note of michael's like most horrifying decision i knew and it got me hard So and so that's basically it. It's like he tells like this very traumatic story of the like basically worst thing he's ever done, and then realizing like that he like the fact that he didn't care is what like shakes him out of yeah. it, and what is ultimately as he reveals what led them to separate. He was like, I knowing that I'm capable of this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I have to go my own way, right? And fuck. And they kind of and James. Like, I don't know if it's in the scene or later where, like, he makes the point of, like, and then you never let anyone die in a job, if possible, ever again. Mm-hmm. Like, which also kind of harkens back to the conversation he had with Sonia a couple of episodes ago where she tells him about, like, Russians studying him and his missions. Yeah. And how he has a surprisingly low body count. And, like, that's something that I think we always just sort of assumed about Michael because, like, he's honorable. Yeah. But I like that we now have a timeline for when that started to be more true. Exactly. And there's, like, a reason for it. I also kind of like the fact that James and even Michael acknowledge that for the first part of his career, he was fine, but he wasn't extraordinary. Right. Like, that's smart Mm -hmm. like it's interesting that that larry and his time with larry is what made him extraordinary but that's and that's so fucked up but then it's not it's like he he saw like he was fine he saw the easy horrible way to do things and then decided to do the much harder thing to never let him be that again and that's what made him a good spy it's not that larry made him a good spy it's knowing who larry was and how much he didn't want to be him but that's the thing though that's why this episode ends where it ends yeah because it's that Mm -hmm. it's like um and it's also just like very much about like yeah it's still just trauma and it's Mm -hmm. like it's not necessarily that like 
it's not necessarily that he needed Larry mm-hmm. and needed this to happen to him for him to be a person that's like that. That's not the only way that one becomes like this, mm-hmm. but it is a way that someone could become like this. And mm-hmm. it's like, and like, yeah. And so it's all tied together where like everything that he does is because of these like abusive traumatic relationships. Mm-hmm. And like having to make a choice of how he's going to react to what has happened to him. Exactly. And that I find the most compelling and interesting way they've ever explored this in a way that feels honest and not exploitative. Right. This is the first time I don't feel like this is exploited. And I do think it's to your point because we're actually seeing him experience it rather than just being told about it by other people. Like right. your father made you who you are. It's like, that sucks. But this is roughly saying the same thing, but in a completely different way. Exactly. It's very, it's fucking good, guys. It's fucking good. And all of these flashbacks are cool because they're like disjointed because Michael's like exhausted and like fucked in the head and hallucinating. And he's like half remembering and half sort of like arguing with characters in his mind palace. And it's like, it's fucked up and it's disjointed and it's so fascinating to watch. Yeah. The filmmaking is fucking impeccable. It's so good, Larry Tang. Good job, Larry Tang. Um, so then after, after he like tells James about that final mission, they let him go sleep, kind of, not really, but he's like taken back to his torture room and we get our second ever true, like unedited burn notice flashback of baby Michael and Nate. Baby Michael looks a lot like Jeffrey Donovan. They did an exceptional job casting. And we, we basically just get uh, the first bit of a scene where we hear daddy weston screaming in the background in the house we hear madeline being like don't you know frank you're drunk like stop this and then we see michael like dragging nate out of the house and is like hey go to the neighbors and nate's like no he's gonna hurt you and michael's like he's not just go to the neighbors go to the neighbors and so we watch him like rescuing nate from their home life and it's like oh god yeah poor nate it's the first time i've ever thought that yeah but like oh this poor confused kid. Um, and so then we cut away from that. And like nothing really happens in that scene other than like we hear the dad. But right. it really fucking works. So uh, back to Fee and Sam. They continue following Sonia. Then we have um, a quick Hyundai commercial. Oh, again, we've had plenty of car commercials on this show. Mm-hmm. This one feels different. It does. It very much feels different. Like, like Fee has a line about the car. Mm-hmm. It's like good thing I have this car. Like exactly, like, in a way that's so much more almost winky. Mm-hmm. Like the show is never winky like this. No, but like it weirdly can be winky in this episode. I mean, it's been winky before. Like they're like you, you need a car that can handle quick turns and. But it's also kind of like, they're doing that, but like. Jeffrey Donovan, because normally Jeffrey Donovan narrates the car commercials. Yeah. And, like, he's narrating them like Jeffrey Donovan, like, he, but he's narrating them like Michael Weston. Mm-hmm. So it's all, whereas, like, like Gabrielle Anwar is giving a commercial line reading. <laughs> like, like, she is giving a line reading that's, like, aware that she's selling a car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. So this scene is the only one that I don't, by because like basically even with this strobe infrared strobe they're still in danger of like losing Sonia because like the strobe is only works if they're like within visual range of it if it get if they like take a turn they won't be able to like detect them otherwise and so Fee's driving like a bat out of hell right bat that was for you oh okay it was for you it was a gift that I've given you 
Like Batman. Yeah, like Batman. Uh, but she's driving like a Batman out of hell. And to like keep up with Sonya. I mean, and it's chicks like, dig the car. Right. But like, is she not worried that Sonya's going to notice? Yeah. Like she's driving so recklessly in this right. bright red fucking Hyundai. Like... It it's, is really weird. It's really that's the genuinely only weird, very weird. That's the only weird part of this episode because it's like, there's no way that no one is noticing. Like she's going on like the side. She's like running red lights. It's like, I like watching Fee drive recklessly because that just right. gets me revved up. But contextually, it doesn't make sense. No, I agree. And I think like it, what I was going to say is that like the thing about the car, the car commercial mm-hmm. aspect of it, is that it feels as subjective in a weird way. What do you mean? Like, in the sense that, like, when when we have these, like, an episode of television like this, wherein, like, a lot of it is very subjectively framed, and, like, you talked about this before, about, like, the, um, the timeline mm-hmm. being kind of unclear. Like, once you have an episode like this, wherein, like, it is not immediately objectively clear which things are obviously real like mm-hmm. it's ob- it is clear which things aren't real right but also like like not the stuff that looks not real like is shot in a way like it's not shot in a way to make it look real it's like all mm-hmm. like once you introduce the idea that like the things that like the things that happen on screen can contort to the narrative mm-hmm. like that the narrative and the story and, like, the story needs and stuff and, like, the subjective experience of things and, like, the mind, the mind's interpretation of events can mm-hmm. shape the way things physically look on screen. Mm-hmm. You can get away with so much more. Right. You can get away with Fee doing a car commercial that <laughs> feels like a car commercial because this world is a little more heightened. This world is a little less literal. Mm-hmm. But and, even but this, so. Even so, this car scene doesn't work. Yeah. Like, it, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Right. Because, it just doesn't work. Yeah. But I'm fine with it because I like watching Feet Drive. Whatever. They manage to keep up with Sonia. They see her getting onto the peninsula that we mentioned earlier. They realize it's a peninsula and that there's no way they can, like, break in without, like, the guards seeing them and then telling Sonia and anyone else who happens to be on this compound. So Sam's like, well, luckily Elsa's got a boat. So let's call Jesse and have him drive Elsa's boat to us and we'll, like, meet him on the water. And okay. Yeah, sure. Poor Jesse. Jesse's got nothing to do in this episode. Jesse's got nothing to do this week. Oh, Jesse. Um, so back inside, uh, Michael is. Remember that episode where Jesse got tortured? Mm-hmm. Imagine if he got this episode. I, you know what? I can't. I, there's something, I, not that I don't think Kobe will do a good job, but like, there's something so much more interesting and gratifying about watching stone face bathroom sign of a man, Michael Weston. Yeah, of course. Ha- like, finally break. Well, because he's Batman. Like, right. Like, I've said multiple times on the show, though, he is Batman. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, like, that, that's a that's like a season one thing. Exactly. Like, so, like, he is Batman. But, it, like, I'm interested in a way... I am interested in the reality of this show, like, forming around... Uh, Jesse is a character mm-hmm. in the way that the reality of the show is forming around Michael as a character in this sure. episode. I just think that it's less it's less satisfying if we do this with Jesse because he's already a more honestly emoting person. No, of course. I I mean a little bit less like in terms of like his emotional baggage. Mm-hmm. In terms of like 
I want to I want the subjective experience of Jesse. That's true. Yeah. That's what I want. That's, That's like and, and I I can live yeah. with that. I, and I and I honestly kind of wish for for all of them. No, uh, yeah, I'm not saying that we should have the Jesse episode instead. I'm saying that like I want a Jesse episode like this. I think every character should get an episode like this, I agree. where it's like fully from their point of view, like fully subjective. Frankly, I wish that the series had taken more of this tact in that episode with Fiona's brothers. Exactly, that you love that I just did not like. Right. I, we can't re- relitigate that. No, of course. Now I know what I want, and it's this. But the thing is, that, like, in that episode, I was seeing this episode. Yeah, and I wasn't. Yeah, and, like, I could see it in that episode, and you couldn't. But, like, that... that I also think that they hadn't committed to the heightenedness, because one of the things I remember not liking about that episode is, like, (laughs) one of the brothers gets shot up by, like, ten bullets, and then the next scene, he's, like, standing up and walking around and is like, I'm fine. Ow. (laughs) And I think that would have worked in a season, in an episode like this, where, like, reality is sort of bendy and weird and subjective, but they hadn't committed to that. No, I think, yeah, I think, like... For me, I was a little more willing to go on that with them in and that episode. I, and I don't to know me, why. they hadn't earned it. Yeah, I don't know why, but I could. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair but enough. But it's also kind of like, like I said earlier, anytime I am declaring something a great episode of television, in my head, it's because it is fitting this ideal. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, okay, so they drug Michael again. They've given him more drugs, uh, drugs on top of drugs. And he is told by James that loyalty is the reason they're even talking to him. It's... However, both a strength and possibly a weakness. And what ultimately they're drugging and torturing him for is they need to see if his old loyalties are still held. They're like, it's good that you're loyal, but at a certain point, you know, is that also holding you back from committing fully to our cause that you need to buy into on a, like, fundamental level? But it's also kind of a thing of, like, his play here is, like, not even necessarily to make sure that, like, yeah, like, he's not interested in whether or not Michael Weston is loyal to him, going to be loyal to him. He wants versus, to know if he's still loyal to the CIA. No, no, no. Even that much if he's still loyal to the CIA, I think it's like, he wants to know what makes Michael Weston tick so he can understand him and use him. If anything, like... Yeah, and to, he's, he's getting the keys to the manipulation card. Exactly. Like, he wants to be able to do to Michael what... Larry did? No, not what Larry did. What, like, the other... What's his name? Uh, card? No, the guy before Card. The previous best villain on this show. Oh, now, Anson. Anson. Like, he wants to be Anson. He, he's like speed running therapy. He is, yes, he is speed running Anson, <laughs> is what he is trying to do. Okay, I like that as a way of thinking. And since Michael's dad is no longer alive because Anson killed him, he's having to, like, interrogate Michael's dad exactly. through like, Michael's. Like, the thing is, like, Anson's been reading up on this guy for years. Like, mm-hmm. he has to do it in a weekend. Sure, sure, sure. And I mean... Because that's how doing cult, a bang up job. Because that's how cult leaders work, right? Like, yeah. As soon as you called him a cult leader, like everything clicked into place, and I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how I was thinking about it. I just didn't put that word to it, but you're 100 yeah. percent right. Very good way of of explaining what the fuck's going on in this episode. But anyway, so he's like pressing him on his loyalties, and we go right back to not only hallucinations, but also the scene we briefly saw, the flashback with his dad. And so Michael uh, is playing with a toy charger, which is so sweet. And like that, it fucking broke me. That started to break me. Like the cracks were there and then we finally see him we see frank weston for the first time and he gets slapped around a little bit and they have this sort of conversation where michael flashes back 
uh, as like a little kid and as an adult. Like we kind yeah. of see Michael Weston, you know, we cut back and you never know what age Michael's going to be when we cut back to his side of the scene. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's very, very good. And it's trippy and it's heartbreaking. Michael Weston's dad in this scene is somehow simultaneously bigger and smaller than you expect him to be. Mm-hmm. You know, like on one hand, like he's huge. He's huge. He looms over the scene mm-hmm. because they we, shoot him from below. Yeah. And like we get the subjective experience of the power of this man. But it's also like they have cast kind of an anonymous looking guy. Mm-hmm. Like they have not cast like all the times with all these like big daddy figures for Michael Weston, they're casting like big name guys. Mm-hmm. They're casting big personality guys. Like, but this guy just looks like a guy. Mm-hmm. He looks like just some dude, but we're still looking at him like he is the most horrifying thing. Mm-hmm. But also he's just a guy. Yeah. And I think that's also extremely effective. Right. Because, like, the truth of the monster is often so much more mundane than what we imagine. Exactly. Like, this is the guy that you cast to, like, really briefly play an abusive dad. Like, I don't know if we ever saw, like, uh, Xander's abusive dad on Buffy, but I'm sure he looked just like this. Yeah. And there's an abusive dad in Doom Patrol. He looks just like this. Like, this is, like, the type. This is the type. And, yeah. and he, he plays it well. Um, and so, like, Frank at, in this, like fake flashback hallucination argument is like trying to get Michael to admit that the CIA is the reason he lost everything. He lost his home. He lost Fee. He lost Nate. And Dream Daddy is not wrong about these things. He's trying to get him to say something out loud. I don't think it's ever explicitly clear what it is, but we know there is a conflict happening and Michael in his head is like, like his dad represents James trying to get this information out of him and just trying to like beat it out of him. And Michael is trying to hold strong, not saying whatever it is. And then we cut to Michael like laying on the floor of his torture chamber. And And we don't know what's happened. We don't know if he said anything. We don't know like at what point they pulled him out. We just know that like he had, he passed out at some point and they have taken him away. Right. Which then leads to Sonya rushing in and being like, we have to get out of here. James wants to kill you. Like, you said something. And so, like, she's implying, like, you said something and now your shit is busted. We got to escape. Right. And The implication is that he admitted that he was with the CIA. Yeah, exactly. That That, that is the implication. Um, and uh, so Sonya runs in and instantly it's I like... I will say, it is the episode's implication. It is not necessarily Sonia's implication. No, no, no. But yes. Sonia is doing an implication. Mm-hmm. But like her implication is like more vague because, of course, spoilers, they don't have anything. Did you at any point think like Sonia is helping him escape? Uh, I very quickly figured out what the, th- the game was. The, well, my thing was, if he wanted to kill him, why didn't he just do it? Why did they put him back in the torture chamber? And how does Sonia have such free reign that she can just like grab him out? I was like, also, this doesn't, if he wants to kill you because you said something, they would have just shot you in the head and buried you at sea. Also, like, she is like a very important person in this cult, mm-hmm. but she is very far gone. She would never choose Michael over the guy. Like, right. Especially never. at this phase. They've had sex once, maybe exactly. twice. Exactly. Like, but for me, it was more like, if Michael is still alive, then he didn't say anything. Exactly. There is not, a, 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 but like, I buy for for the episode's sake that like, he is extremely out of it. He's just had a very emotionally traumatizing exactly. conversation in his own brain. He's drugged on so much. He's so fucking high. He doesn't know what's going on. So basically, um, like, it doesn't matter that you know what the twist exactly. is. Exactly. Because like, you're still just like, so upset on his behalf. Yeah. And so like, torn up that you're just like, I hope something good happens to this poor boy. So Sonia, like, low key sneaks 
kicks him out of the compound and is like, I have a boat, we'll go. And then we cut between the gang on the boat. Jesse is now with Sam and Fee and they're like on a boat further away, like trying to see what's going on. They see Michael and Sonia rush out from like the wooded area around the mansion. We see guards chasing them down. Sam takes out a gun to try and like back Michael up. He's like, no, he's my friend. And Fee and James, uh, Jesse are like, this seems like a bad idea. Like, don't do this. But eventually Michael remembers like the final bit of his hallucinated conversation with his dad um, and realizes, oh, I, I have, I, I'm, I'm, I didn't say anything. That conversation ended with me having nothing left to say to my dad and my dad walking away. And then he's like, I definitely didn't reveal anything. That doesn't make any sense. And so Michael puts it together, turns around and rushes back into the woods, into the like guards. And it's like, take me back to James. I didn't say shit. <laughs> what are you talking about? The thing is, it they actually play it a little bit coy that that's what's going on. Like it is what's going on. I think it's pretty obvious what's going on, but they never like, they do kind of like head off on like what is going on in his mind a little bit of like, everyone's kind of confused by what Michael is doing. Mm -hmm. Like Sam, like Fee and Sam are like very confused about why he's doing this. Mm -hmm. He is not explaining himself. He is like, the voiceover is not explaining. Mm -mm. Like. Yeah. He just like, he remembers the sort of like hallucinated version of whatever conversation was literally happening with James. He remembers his dad walking away and not hitting him again. He remembers standing strong and not saying anything and then he rushes back into the compound to like put himself at their mercy instead of taking the easy way out and running away and admitting fault right like he's like no i'm in you either kill me now or you let me in and james is like awesome and sonia's like i told you he was good right so you know we 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 confirm what was suspected which is that was the final part of the test and michael has passed and he's like hello my name is james welcome to the family Yes. Uh, our, <laughs> the Charles Manson family. <laughs> the Charles Manson family. So we've got two more scenes. The first is at Madeline's where Sam enters to find Michael asleep on the couch and Fee and Jesse quietly watching over him. This is to me the wildest thing, actually. That they again, put him in the couch? Not that they put him in the couch. That, like, he's back home now. Like, he's not now sequestered somewhere. Like, it's weird that, like, okay, you just, you're doing a job now. It's like, it's weird that they're not following michael at all times yeah i mean they might be but they also know that these are his this is his family they also yeah. he's like strung out of his mind and they have to delete the evidence right delete the evidence um oh did we explain that apparently that's what sam's about to do okay cool. sam walks in asks like fee and jesse how he's doing uh and then is like so i went back to the island it's fucking gone they raised it to the ground. There is nothing left. They demolished a mansion to cover up their tracks. It's amazing. It's wild. Yeah. I almost like wish, like, again, this is a thing where literally they, just, they didn't have time. And like, how would you do it? Like, like, it's a lot of work to kind of do it. But like, it's such a great like ghost thing where if you like go back and like the mansion's not even there. It's like, did it happen? It's like, <laughs> this mansion hasn't been here for 30 years. Right. Like it is that kind of thing of like, there is something like, oh, it's gone now. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like the, the mansion only exists to be trauma. Right. Like, like they, like they, Michael goes for like a night run. Right. And walks up to it and it's just gone. There's nothing there. Yeah. Uh, that would be fucking cool. They they didn't have time for that, but they fuck, that would have been cool. But the thing is that, like like I said earlier, the only reason that they didn't do it, like with the shaving thing, is they didn't have time for it. Not that 
this episode could not contain it. Exactly. So, you know, it, it's the law of possibility uh, yeah. wins here, and it's very good. The other thing that we learned in this scene actually broke me. I did cry <laughs> was yeah. that there is the reveal that because Sam's like, how is he like, is he woken up? And they're like, he only woke up once. He's very out of it. And the only reaction he had was Fee went up to try and talk to him once he woke up and he just looked at her and burst into tears and didn't say anything the rest of the day. And I was like, I'm emotional now. Fuck. They just described Michael Weston, the man that we have learned basically nothing about for seven years and he takes one look at his beautiful ex-girlfriend and just sobs and he just cries he doesn't say anything he just describing michael weston as bursting into tears at all is like it shakes me to my core the fact that he did it because he got his eyes on fiona i'm done i'm fucking done the thing about this episode (gasps) is that like the closest analog that i can think of on another show to this episode is there's an episode of Mr. Robot, a show that you have not seen. I saw most of the first season. Okay, this is like a final season. Like, oh, yeah. The thing is that like, it functions similarly, like, like um, without giving away too much, like it is an episode that is very similarly, largely kind of an interrogation where the final reveal of the show is trauma. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's very similarly similarly shot and done. It's very artful. Like, but the thing is that like, that's a Mr. Robot episode. It's like wild that the closest analog that to this episode is a Mr. Robot episode. And it's not just a Mr. Robot episode, but like one of the big ones, like one of the big artistic swings. One of the episodes of that show where they shoot in like not sixteen nine, and they shoot in like widescreen, like two twenty three or something. Like. Hmm. Yeah, this fucking episode, man, I just... The thing is, this episode, like, is the kind of episode of television that would change its aspect ratio. It's, like, actually slightly odd to me that they, like, <laughs> like you could imagine them changing the aspect ratio. Oh, you like, totally could. Yeah. Because it's definitely framed to accommodate that. Exactly. But yeah, so I'm devastated, um, and then the devastation don't end there, because the final scene of the episode also takes place in the living room, where Michael awakes after, like, several days, like... Um, and he turns over and across the living room from him on another couch is his nephew, Charlie, also sleeping in the living room. And he kind of like looks up and he's sort of like disoriented and his mom comes in and explains, oh, the reason, um, that he's like, why is Charlie out here? And she's like, oh, he was so excited that you were home. He couldn't even like go to bed in his own room. He wanted to stay out here with you. (laughs) I just can't. It's so sweet. Ugh. And um, he chats with his mom for a little bit and he reveals that like one of the things he saw when he was high as a fucking kite is he saw his dad and um, weirdly his dad was the only reason he survived like the thing that they know he just went through. And I mean, he's not wrong. (laughs) He's not wrong. I think like the thing that makes this work is that like every other time like that idea Mm -hmm. is played as like the silver lining right like it's played as like it was bad but it made me the person that i am Mm -hmm. where it's like this time it's played as horror this time it's played like yeah it's 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 the difference between but and and it's this you know this this was bad but it made me who i am versus this is this is bad and it made me who i am and like there is this fear 
in the same way that he is afraid of being Larry, mm-hmm. he is afraid of being his dad. Mm-hmm. He is like, and it's talking about the way that like, oh, I have this in me. Mm-hmm. Like this experience put this in me. Mm-hmm. Like I see some of my dad in me and it's horrifying. I don't want to be this. I don't like the fact that he made me this person. Mm-hmm. Like I am this person. And like, he did that. Like, like he did it. Larry did it. Like, these men have forever left a mark on him. Mm-hmm. And that is horrifying. Mm-hmm. And that, like, that is the only way that you can play this. And it works. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I, I think especially, re- like, contextualizing the Larry of it all and, like, uh, how much time we spent with Larry in his little mind palace. Like, yeah. I think it's really artfully done. It's fucking good. Really artfully done. It's... I'm, like, genuinely, like, emotional right now. We have to move on, because otherwise I'm just going to spend the rest of this episode crying. Uh, So there's only two spy tips that are even tangentially even a little bit anything. Yeah, I was not at all paying attention to spy tips when I was watching this episode, but I was like, were there any? Uh, Ish. I'll read you the two that, like, we could get something out of. They're they're just both, like, interrogation-related stuff. Yeah. Uh, so number one, any interrogation... It's weird that the episode that has the least spy tips, really, and the least kind of voiceover, is also the one that is the most in Michael's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the irony of that is yeah. for sure a thing. Uh, but yeah, so number one, an interrogation is about rhythm and repetition. Experienced interrogators will establish the pace of questioning to establish control. Once they have control, they can probe for more detailed information, exactly where you've been and what you've done. Techniques such as sleep deprivation, noise irritation, and sensory overload are used to uh, disorient you to make it harder to resist questioning. The Geneva Convention doesn't consider these methods to be torture, but when you're experiencing them, it sure feels like it. The idea is that the more worn out you become, the more likely you are to make a mistake your interrogator can pounce on. But at a certain point, keeping your story straight is next to impossible when you're struggling to maintain your sanity. So this was just like a lot of details about how to effectively run an interrogation, which... And the fact that, at least at the time, the Geneva Convention does not consider any of these methods literally torture. Yeah, I can take that. You know what I'll I mean? I'll take it. Yeah. I wasn't sure at first, but yeah, I'll take it. There's there's enough there that, you know, the next time I need to interrogate someone, I've got some places to start. This is one of the genre of burn notice, like, spy tips, where it's a good tip if you want to be a villain. <laughs> I feel like that's also true for a lot of, like, bomb-making tips that we have. I mean, necessarily. I mean, like, I think the position of burn notice is that, like... Like there's guns all... don't kill people. People kill people. Uh, bombs don't kill people. People kill people. Like the only thing that stops a bad person with a bomb is a good person with a bomb. <laughs> like you're, way more than guns. Wrong. Yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. You're you're not wrong. Uh, all right. So this number two. This is the only other one. Um, and this is probably not anything, but. We, we already kind of talked about it, and I liked the turn of phrase, so I wanted to mention it. Number two, if you're given psychoactive drugs during an interrogation, it doesn't automatically make you spill every secret you've ever had. Drugs are used less to make you tell the truth than to make it hard to lie. Without a clear head, it's difficult to make up a story and stick to it. I never thought about it like that. That makes sense it can say. And in the episode, they tell us the combination. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> so when I'm interrogating you, uh, I'll know what to pump you full of. All right. So yeah, that's two. <laughs> right there are not five pre- like we can run through the, the the motions of this pretty quickly because we know it's not a great episode it's of not a great episode of burn out us it's um like... so there's not pra- five practical spy tips there's no case so i don't know if we can consider it having spycraft spy over violence. violence um i mean technically fee and sam used spycraft in that they followed her and used like a undetectable infrared sensor to follow sonia right and the, but it's also kind of like i was saying about the tip like, there is spycraft, it's just 
the bad guys were doing it. Mm-hmm. Like, so would you give it this? I would give it it. All right, fine. I'll give it. Uh, there's no alias. No alias. There's no one to run from but himself. No. Uh, and then are at least four, at least four, are at least two supporting characters used well. Fee does not get to blow something up and also definitely does not get to be no. protagonist. Not enough. Uh, I don't think Sam gets to be Pete Bruce Campbell. No. Like, this is a very much a, a two-hander, frankly. Like, yeah, this is. Uh, Jesse is not a distinct addition rather than a redundancy. Frankly, Jesse doesn't need to fucking be there. If no. Jesse wasn't there, nothing about this episode right. would change. And then Madeline, would you consider her final scene with Michael a genuine emotional moment with another character? Yeah, I'll give him that. It was yeah. a short scene. But, a short scene, but yeah. It, I mean, it, it sent us off on and the, it's also the right like, note. Like, the final note of the episode, it is, like, the thematic crescendo. It is, mm-hmm. like, the thing that it is building towards. Like, and, it, yeah. and it works. And it works. So, yeah. okay. So that's that's technically two out of four, which is right. not bad. Not bad. But, like, yeah, objectively, we cannot consider this for, a great episode of Burn Notice. For an episode that, in text, you said to me is, like, not an episode of Burn Notice, but is an episode of television that has Burn Notice characters. Yeah, it. I was like, this is a canonical, a canonical episode to the Burn Notice universe that is not an episode of Burn Notice. Right. And I don't think I'm wrong, but um, are we going to even dither over whether or not that's this a great is, episode of television? It's a fucking I, great episode of television. It's like, like, and like talking it, like I enjoyed watching it, talking it through with you yeah. made me like it so much more, which is my favorite thing about this show. And like the reason that I'm not disappointed that it's ending, but I'm a little bit like pre nostalgic for it ending because right. I like doing this. I like deconstructing television really specifically with you specifically, but you know, with, with people in general. And I, 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 I enjoy TV more when I talk about it. No. Yeah. Same. 100%. I, I was watching Beetlejuice for the first time with a friend of mine. I was very high. Beetlejuice is like an hour and a half movie. It took us like three hours because we kept pausing Beetlejuice to talk about Beetlejuice (laughs) and like all the things that it was doing. Mm -hmm. So like that was the headspace that I was in when I watched this episode. Yeah. You had like a weirdly perfect setup for this episode. I weirdly did. So yeah. I mean, is there anything left to say? I feel like we, I mean, we're almost at the two hour mark of the recording. I, I mean, I don't know. It's great. It's like the question I think now is, is this the best episode of Burn Notice? I don't know if I would say yes. I think I think I still like episode two of this season better. I mean, I know I like this episode. I like episode two a lot. I like this episode better. And I think the reason that I can't say that I like this episode better is just because it doesn't feel like a Burn Notice episode. And it feels almost like I'm cheating on Burn Notice. <laughs> like I'm having no, an emotional that. fair. No, I get that. I understand that. And I think like... And I also... And we've talked a lot I, about like the the... The distinction between like the quintessential and the like mm-hmm. the I forget what the other word that I use all the time. Um, platonic ideal. Not no. I mean like well, quintessential and platonic ideal are sort of the same thing versus like the oh, kind I of transcendent. Trans- the quintessential yeah. the the quintessential versus the transcendent. Whereas right. like this is a transcendent episode of Burnout. It's like it is great because it becomes a thing that is bigger than Burnout as can normally be. Right. So wait. Uh, so was your question is this the best or was it our favorite? Well, no. I don't. No, I don't think. This is my favorite episode of Burn Notice. Okay. I think my favorite episode of Burn Notice might still be Fearless Leader. Interesting. I think, like, they're... It's a great fucking episode. Like, I think, like... And because it is so quintessentially Burn Notice in a way that I enjoy, mm-hmm. I think, like, that is still my favorite episode of Burn Notice. But I don't think I can make it an argument that any other episode of Burn Notice is better than this episode. I would also have a hard time arguing that. 
it's it's fucking really good. It's really fucking good. Like, it is a thing of just, I can't make an argument that it is, that anything else is. And something that's interesting about it is that, like, even though you were joking earlier that Joe and Tony should watch this, this is the, the only episode Tony should watch, like, this episode doesn't make sense out of context. No, it doesn't. And I appreciate it all the more for that. No, I think that it is requires the, the lexicon of burn notice that came before to fully appreciate what they're doing. It is one of those truly great episodes of television that only works in television. It is the mm-hmm. kind of story that only works in television because like we said, there's been all of this work that's been like pre-done already. It's like mm-hmm. we've built to this point. It is we know where everyone's at relationship-wise, we know where the tension is, we know where the fault lines are. And like it it is. It's like that. It's like there's an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine that's like this. I'm blanking on the name. Anyone who likes Star Trek is mad at me. But yeah, it is like, this is why I like television. Like mm-hmm. this episode right here is why I like television for these transcendent moments. I love week to week stuff. I love like, I love other things about television, but this is why I love television. Yeah. I, you know what? I agree 100% uncategorically right. or categorically, whatever unrestrictively unresolvedly un right like this is a very cinematic episode of television but like it wouldn't have the same power if it was a movie yeah 100% i yeah and i think that's ultimately what makes me agree with you i do think this is the best episode of burn notice yeah so far at least so far like it's possible that there's another one that's better mm-hmm. i sincerely doubt it yeah and like the reason is like Bad breaks can make sense out of context. Fearless leader can make sense out of context. Like, as long as you know the logline of burn notice, which they give us every fucking start of the episode, you understand what's happening. Even with the episode with Michael and Fee, they give you enough context that it's kind of self-contained. Yeah. I like that this cannot be a self-contained episode. No, it cannot. Without having six years of baggage, or at least three years yeah. of baggage, it would not have the same effect. And I that that is what makes me love it so much. This is, like, it's transcendent, but in a way that could only happen because of the establishing that we have done. No, that's the thing, right? I think, like, that's the only way that you can transcend. This is an episode that, honors the burn notice that came before this episode of burn notice achieves enlightenment <laughs> but it also loves burn notice and it no, loves it its care and i think that's important because i think that a lot of people <laughs> who don't like us just assume that we're haters and like think that we think we're better than them and that we you know all this stuff and like that's not not true um <laughs> but i i, don't wanna, I, don't wanna... I love episodes like this that like remind me that I do love this show. And it's not like, I wish Burn Notice was like this every week. You know, I don't want necessarily Burn Notice to be a fundamentally different show because I think that it has all the things it needs to already be that. Yeah. I just don't think the execution is always great. Exactly. And the episodes like this remind me how much I genuinely do love this show. And I'm glad that I have watched it as many times as I have. I mentioned earlier the serial killer episode. Mm -hmm. Thinking again now, like, how this easily could have been that serial killer episode. Oh, totally. And, like, I might have hated it. Like, just like I don't like that episode. Is that why you think that our our boys were a good choice for this episode? We never came back to that because we haven't mentioned Peter Lillianis and um, Ryan Johnson yet. They've definitely, up to this point, established themselves as very good writers. Mm -hmm. But also writers for whom, like, when they are writing an episode, they've usually got like a take they have got like a like a through line like kind of like like the the episode that they first came on that we like loved the hurricane one the hurricane one is that like 
the hurricane informs everything around it. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, like, a kind of conceptual thing that cont- the episode is contained in. Mm. Like, in the same way, this is, like, got a conceptual hook that the episode is contained in, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like it cares more, of like, about telling this particular story than it cares about being an episode of Burn Notice in a way that I think their episodes kind of do sometimes. Like, they seem like the people who are artistically adventurous enough to do this. Yeah, I agree with that. And I and I think there is also a world building aspect to like yeah. building Michael's, you know, mind palace. Exactly. That these two are uniquely set up to do. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. All right. Well, great job, everyone. Yeah, we talked a lot about the direction because the direction is great. But mm-hmm. like, like it had to be informed by something. And, and like the, the script's great. Like you did a great job, guys. Like yeah, I feel like it's we're fucking how, we're underselling how important the script of this is, like mm-hmm. how how important the conception of it is. Like, the script's great. It's great. Yeah, yeah, great job. There's like truly nothing left to say, but to also say thanks to something else great, which is our theme music composed by the wonderful Vincent E. L. Uh, you can find more of Vince's music at vincentel.bandcamp.com. And until next week, bye. Na 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 Batman. Burn notice.